Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten that the word of encouragement, you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and life? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. This is the word of God. <clears throat> the book of Hebrews was written to people who have been suffering so much that they've been ready to give up. They were ready to hang up the gloves. And the author, in Hebrews chapter 11, he says, you need faith. And he goes on this discourse about faith throughout chapter 11. You need a faith that isn't overwhelmed by the odds. He says, you need a faith that says, I'm willing to endure. And he leads into chapter 12, and chapter 12 is really the climax of this incredible pastoral counsel to us. How do you deal with suffering? This is the answer right here. How do you deal with it? And he says, you really need to see three things and apply it. See three things. You need to see that suffering is training. Suffering is readiness. Suffering is discipline. And then you need the power to be able to view suffering these ways. Suffering as training, readiness, discipline, and then the power to see it, to view suffering that way. First, we're going to look at suffering as training. In verse 1, the author says, let us run the race marked out for us. In the Greek, that word race is the Greek word agon, which is where you get the word agony. And we said this before, that that. The reason why the author is saying this is that life isn't a sprint. Life is fast. Life is quick, but it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And in a marathon, it's really, it's agonizing. There's a lot of pain. And, and because it's a marathon, because it's a race, he says, you need to pack light. You need to throw off everything that hinders, particularly the sin, he says, and the sin that so easily entangles. And later on, he explains that. He says that no discipline seems pleasant at the time. In fact, it's painful, but later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. He calls, he calls on one hand, he says, yes, suffering is agony, but it's training. And the word there, the Greek word is gymnazo. It's where we get the word gymnasium. So Matthew says, life is like a gymnasium. You're just being trained. From the moment you're born, you're trained in your suffering to get stronger. He's saying this, life is tragic. Life is overwhelming at times, but there's a plan. When you enter into a gym, when you enter into training, there's a plan. He says your suffering is like that. It's a form of training. You know, when you're in the military, while you're in training, every day you're in training. Boot camp is like this, right? You're in training every day. You go through drills, you go through obstacles and hurdles, and every detail of your life is just broken down. And they're straining, and they're groaning, and they're suffering. And it just breaks you down. In fact, many people want to give up. In fact, some people do give up. 
Many people want to give up. They want to let it go. It's agonizing, but it's all purposeful. There's a plan. There's a plan. There's training. And if you endure, yes, it's going to break you down. It's going to make you want to give up. But people say if you endure, there's almost a kind of rebirth. When you're in the military and you go through that training and you endure that training, when you come out, number one, the group of people who have trained with you, you become a body. You become a team. And there's a birth. There's a rebirth. There's a newness about you. There's a certain kind of strength. There's a certain kind of courage. There's a certain kind of humility that's built up. That training is necessary for the battleground. That training is necessary for the real suffering that you're going to endure, he says. When you walk into a gym, what do you see? Everyone is training. Nobody goes to the gym. I don't know, maybe some people go to the gym for this. Nobody goes to the gym just for entertainment. They don't go to the gym just to hang out, right? Everyone goes who's in a gym is suffering. They're groaning. They're breaking down in some way. They're sweating. And, you know, they always say, it's the adage, right? No pain. No gain. In other words, you need the pressure that goes against you. you need, when you're lifting weights, it's that force that's pressing against you that's causing you to strain. It's that force that's going against you that's forcing you to exert. Tremendous stress on your body. Tremendous stress. It's a mind game as well. You want to give up. Every set, you want to give up. But you need that or else what's going to happen? Your body, just, if you just sit there on a couch... You say, well, I'm not going to hurt my body. I'm just going to sit on a couch, watch TV. But if just by sitting there and watching TV, what happens to your body? It starts to decay. Even if you're alive, your body just starts to, there's entropy. You get bigger, right? Your body just starts to expand and you start to decay. And if that's how it is with the human body, the author here is not just talking about physical training, clearly. He's talking about, he's talking about uh, spiritual maturity, your training is absolutely necessary for that maturity. And so suffering, in a sense, it's needed for, your, for the growth of your faith. Your faith will not grow unless it's tested. Your courage will not grow unless you're challenged. Otherwise, you're going to have a very shallow faith. You're going to be a very immature person without suffering. And the amazing thing is when you're torn down, when you're broken down, when you're beaten up, when your muscles are just turning to goo, then you're getting stronger. Then you're actually being built up. If you work out just enough to avoid pain, it's all in vain. You're actually not going to grow, right? But when you, it's when you run more than you thought you could and you just feel broken down, you feel weak and you feel sore and every part of you is hurting, then you're actually getting stronger. That's what's happening. You need, to, you need to see suffering as training. Suffering is training. Uh, and uh, you need to see it that way. Now, the second thing the author says here is that suffering is a preparation. It's a readiness. Most of our suffering, most of our suffering, you know, part of the pain is the actual suffering itself. But most of our suffering, in the beginning, it's the shock that it's actually happening to you. That initial shock is like, it's like a meteorite. That impact of the, sh- the shock, the impact, right, it's, it's disorienting, it's confusing. And a lot of the suffering begins with that disorientation, right? Um, and then you go into the actual pain of the suffering. Here, the text says it's inevitable. You can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. It's inevitable. So instead of trying to avoid it, instead of trying to escape it all the time, prepare for it, he says. And so, in a sense, all of life, you know, Martin Luther, the great theologian Martin Luther, he says, all of life is repentance. And that repentance, we're going to talk about this, but that repentance is a part of that preparation. But in reality, I'm going to tell you this as a brother, an older brother, all of life is readiness. It's just being ready, ready for the next stage. Not ready in a material sense, There's a mental and spiritual and psychological readiness, a preparation for the endurance that you need for that long haul. And so, in a sense, all of life is a readiness to handle the suffering that you're going to encounter. It's inevitable you're going to encounter it. All of life is a readiness to prepare for that encounter. Because when you you experience suffering, 
no one's going to come and tell you, okay, here's what's going to happen. You're about to suffer, right? So you got to be, no one's going to do that to you. If you've ever gone to surgery or if you've ever known or had a loved one who's ever entered into surgery, what happens is there are two types of preps that you go through when, you, when you're in surgery. When you're in the waiting room, before you enter into the surgery, a doctor preps you. The doctor actually preps the person who's going into surgery, right, and says, hey, here's what's going to happen, here's what we're going to do, um, and it's going to take about this long. It's a simple procedure. It's a difficult procedure. It's a bit complex. Nowhere in life will you ever have anybody come to you and tell you that that's what's about to happen. That's part of the suffering. Okay, it blindsides you. It's like a meteorite. Hits you. But the other type of prep is if you're sitting in the waiting room and you're waiting for a loved one to finish surgery, a nurse, doctor, usually comes out and tells you what you're about to see. They're going to say, don't be alarmed. Okay? They're going to have tubes in them. They're going to look bad. It's going to look like this. What are they doing? They're preparing you for the suffering that you're about to endure. Because if you walk in blind and it hits you, you're going to fall apart. You're going to, it's going to break apart. You're going to freak out. You're going to melt down. And, and the reason why we oftentimes melt down when we experience suffering like this is because the worldview that we had was not adequate to support the suffering that we're enduring. The worldview that we have, the way you view the world, was not adequate to support all the suffering that you're experiencing. And so in a way, what happens is you're not ready for the worst. And because you're not ready, you lose heart. You're overwhelmed. And if suffering comes into your life and you're not ready, you're going to melt down. You're definitely going to melt down because you were not prepared for this. You were not able to, your worldview was not able to support this. That's why you're falling apart. But if you're ready... If you're ready, in chapter 11, the chapter right before this, outlines all the people who experienced suffering. And in a way, as they were experiencing it, as it was coming to them, they start to prepare themselves for the great suffering that they're about to endure. And that's why they're written in chapter 11. And that leads right here. He says, in the same way, you need to be ready. You need to prepare yourself. Because if you're ready... You can face great challenges. You can live a big life. And all those people written in chapter 11 live big lives. Hebrews chapter 12 begins with this. He says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, basically what he's saying is, look at all the people. We just got through chapter 11. Look at all those people. Great cloud of witnesses. How did they live a big life? Do you think they lived a big life because they were greater than you? Do you think they lived a big life because they were so just baseline wiser than you? Do you think they lived a big life because they're just so much stronger than you? No. These people, they matured in their suffering. They, they, they saw their suffering, and through it, they saw there must be a deeper reality than what I'm able to see today. There must be something, a reality that's underneath this reality that I see. And my worldview has to be able to support what I'm about to experience. They knew because if they didn't have a worldview that was appropriate, they would fall apart. They would retreat to very small lies and they would wither away. They would lose heart. They would grow weary. How did they live a big life? They matured in their suffering because through it they saw a deeper reality underneath the visible reality. And that means that you need to see a reality underneath the visible reality to, un, to, to uh, uh, go through and endure the type of suffering that you experience. Because if you don't, it's going to fail. You're going to fall apart. All these people in chapter 11, you have Abel, you have Enoch, you have Noah, you have Abraham, you have Moses. All these people, they saw a reality beneath the visible and so they saw life differently. And because they saw life differently, they were able to endure immense pain, immense suffering. They had a faith that gave them wisdom. They had a faith that gave them strength. They had a faith that gave them courage. And, and as a result, they weren't driven by what they saw. They weren't driven by the visible. They weren't driven by their bank account. Abraham, very, very wealthy. Moses, he was a prince of Egypt, very, very wealthy. They had power. They had influence. They had wealth. They had reputations. 
you can say that all of them had careers that were burgeoning. Some of them were great politicians and kings. And now the author says, every one of them are witnesses to your suffering. In the same way that they endured, you will endure. In the same way that they suffered, you will suffer. In the same, day, in the same way that they endured, will you endure? Can you endure? Verse 2, the author says, the greatest of these witnesses is who? Jesus Christ. He says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The author, right, meaning the planner, he is the, not only the, the trainer, he is not only the one who disciplines, right? He is, God is not only our father, he says he is the one who is planted. He is the author and the perfecter. Not only are you going through, you feel broken down, beat down, he's using that to perfect you. He's using that to build you and perfect you and complete you. Look to Jesus Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith. Verse 3, consider him who endured. In other words, consider, think about him, dwell on him, understand what he, you need to see it, he says. You need to see the ultimate picture of the ultimate suffering. You need to see the ultimate picture of the ultimate endurance. Because if you do, it's not just a model or an example for you. It's the power for you. We're going to get to that. He says, so that you will not grow weary, you will have power. So that you do not lose heart, you will have power. And that power, that's going to make you great. You're going to live a big life. Here's the question. What is your view of reality that keeps you going? I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. If your view, the view of life that keeps you going, you say, if I can just find the love of my life, if I just have that one person in my life, that's all I need to keep going in life. If that's it, then your happiness and your sadness is going to be built on that love life of yours. And if that love life goes well, your life goes well. And if that love life goes poorly, you go poorly. And if that love life breaks, you will break. You will fall apart. You will melt down. If your life is built on your bank account, if your bank account is growing, you are growing. If your bank account is shrinking, you are shrinking. And if you lose your bank account, if you lose your job, if you lose your salary, if you lose your, uh, your, your monetary well-being, you lose your life. You lose your identity. You lose your soul. The author says that's what it means to grow weary. That's what it means to lose heart. If those are the things that you, your life, your happiness is built around, if you lose it, you're going to fall apart. And you're going to do anything you can as a result to keep, to protect those things that you believe make and break your life. Friends, no matter what it is, the author is saying all those other things, they're all traps. They're all traps, rat holes that if you just fall into, fall into, pursue, it's going to end you. You're going to end up in the ground, you see? You're going to end up in the ground. It's why the author says, let us throw off, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles because it's going to happen. If you build your life on your wealth, one day you will experience the pain and the torture of losing your job. Everyone's due. You will experience the pain or the risk of losing your job. Everyone's due, and it's going to create a certain kind of suffering in your life. And that suffering is either going to be so sky high that you will fall apart if it happens, or it's going to be something that you can endure, persist through. Are you ready? Are you prepared? We see suffering as training. We see suffering as readiness. The third thing the author says is the suffering, there's suffering as discipline. Because what he does is the author goes from talking about training and talking about preparation, right? And he uses words like agony and erase. And then he shifts in verse 5. And verses 5 to verse 11, the end of the passage that we read today, he also all of a sudden shifts to this image, this metaphor of a father. So he goes from a trainer and he talks about a father. Verses 5 through 11, he says, When troubles come into your life, it's really got part of God's fatherly care for you, part of God's fatherly love for you. And that's, why, that's how he shifts the metaphor. And, and why does he do this? It's because the author, he's a really good pastor. The author's a good shepherd. 
He knows that he's writing to people who are suffering. And when you're suffering, you don't want to hear about training. When you're in it, before you go into it, it's good to know that it's training. It's good to know that it's about readiness. But when you're in it, it's, you're, bad. you're a bad counselor if you say, listen, you got to gut it out. It's training. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's training or it's preparation. You want to hear that there's a father who cares. There's a comforter who knows. And so what he's saying is this trainer of yours, this author of yours, this perfecter of yours, this, this uh, discipline uh, that you're enduring right now, it's the discipline not of a trainer, but of a father. That, that trainer is your father. And, and what he's saying, he knows that you're suffering. So on one hand, he's telling you the suffering is going to train you. Yes, the suffering is going to train you. You have to be ready. But on the other hand, your father knows exactly what you need to be ready. Your father knows. He cares for you. In fact, if you look at verses 5 to 11, the word discipline, the discipline of a father, it's the Greek word pedia, where you get the word pediatrician. Okay, so imagine a doctor slash father who cares for you, right? He's the one who knows exactly what you need so that you could be healed. He's the one who knows exactly what you need to go through so that you could be ready. He's the one that's training you. He's the one that's bringing you up. That word discipline appears more than 10 times in just these verses that you read, this short span, verses 5 to 11, at least 10 times. And each time it's just a variation of that word, pedia. And what he's saying here is, you got to think like a child. Some of you have children, so you know how to think like a child. you, you got to think like a child for a minute. A child goes to a doctor, and the doctor asks some questions to the father, and the father says, no, he hasn't had that yet. No, he hasn't gone through that yet. No, he hasn't taken that yet. And the doctor says, this child needs a few shots. Okay, this, this child needs a few uh, needles. What is that? That's suffering. You get a needle, some of you bristle at the idea of getting needles. But your child, that needle is like this thick, right? Uh, proportionally. And uh, he's suffering. He knows that he's about to, it's agony. And the child says, no, this is not good. I mean, what did I do to deserve this? Why are you doing this to me? I mean, if you love me, you would never put me through this kind of pain. Now, religious people, what do they say? What's wrong? Why, did, why is this happening to you? Your sin. That's the reason. Your brokenness, that's the reason. And then you need to go through this because you, you are diseased and you are dying and you're going to die and you are dead. And so you need, you, it's, it's punishment and you need to go through this, right? Uh, and so you, gotta, you better, you deserve it. Put up with it. Buck up. Tupac, right? You got to keep your head up, right? That's what he says. But if you're a good pediatrician, a good pediatrician will say, yeah, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. It's going to pinch. But I want you to know this is good for you. I want you to know you need this. You need it so you don't suffer more later. And a father, a good father will say, it's going to hurt. But I'm not doing this to punish you. You're not doing this because you're bad. You're doing this, I'm, we're doing this because we love you. You're going through this because I love you. And I'm going to be right there with you. And you're going to cry. And you can hold my hand. And you can hug me afterwards. And I'll give you a lollipop afterwards right that's what happens right and right after what happens they cry and they're angry sometimes they cry because they're sad and they're sad because they're crying and they're angry because they're crying and they're sad right and they cry to you and they hug you and you hug him and you just hold him tight a few minutes he's fine right a father knows a doctor knows a trainer knows what you need to grow in fact, a father knows. A father's overall purpose is what? To care for the well-being of that child, the growth of that child, to monitor that child's growth. And so if that child is not growing healthy, the father already has a plan in place to make him healthy, to work to nourish that child, right? And if that child is not growing in character, the father is going to do what he can. The father is going to do everything he needs to instruct the child. Verse 5, to rebuke the child. Verse 6, to punish the child. Verse 10, our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness, that we may get more of God in us, in his holiness, that we and God may be more at one 
That the righteousness and the peace, later on a harvest of righteousness and peace will grow in us. That God will have more of his glory. His desire, his overwhelming desire is to get more of his righteousness and his glory in you. And that's going to happen sometimes through suffering. A lot of times through suffering. Friends, it's going to happen a lot. And when it happens, you've got to remember the Father who loves you like a father. No one cares for your well-being. No one cares for your character more than God, a true father. If a kid lies, if your child lies to you, because there's a stretch of time when the kid starts to learn that, right? You don't know where he picked it up because it's pretty much built in. It's in his spiritual DNA. And one day it starts to wake up. And he says, I'm going to start to lie. And they go through stretches of this, right? The worst thing, when you catch your child in a lie, the worst thing you could do to that child is not discipline him. To not teach the child that there are consequences to what he's doing. And the reason why you do that is because you do love the child. If you really love the child, you, and if you're wise, you're going to think ahead for that child, and you know that that child will be miserable and lonely if he lives a life of lies. If he gets away with a lie and gets away with a lie and gets away with a lie, he's going to think, hey, I'm getting pretty good at this. And he's going to get craftier and craftier at that. And if you teach him, if you let him go, you think you're loving him by just letting him go, that's the worst thing you could do because then he'll live a life of lies. And then his whole life becomes a lie. And nothing true will ever stick with him. Do you understand? It's very important. The worst thing you could do is not discipline God, as your perfect father, allows suffering. So you need to view suffering properly because if you do, you will get more of God's glory in you. You will, get, you will share in the holiness of God. You're going to be healed of the things that are really killing you. You think, well, in order for me to get better, I need A, B, and C. But God says, no, 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 no. What's really destroying you, what's really corroding your soul is very, very subterranean. It's deep under your heart, deep in your skin. And the only way to get those things out, it's like a cancer. The only way to get that, get, it's, there's a lot of cutting that needs to happen. There's a lot of pain that needs to happen. And he says, then you will be healed. He's doing it out of his love. Suffering is God's way of getting his greatness and his glory into your soul. Okay? Because there's a brokenness. There's a brokenness outside of you. And there's a brokenness inside of you. On the outside, there's disease. There's conflict. There's, there's racism. There's oppression. There's injustice. And it's abounding. It's abounding. You're going to experience it. If it hasn't hit you yet, it will hit you. There are layoffs. There's debt. There's physical pain. There's just aging. Aging. And eventually, the brokenness is going to hit you. There's betrayal, and there's cheating, and there's opposition. You see, there's gossip, there's hurt, there's oppression, but there's also an inside brokenness, one that you can't see a lot of times. There's foolishness, there's pride, there's selfishness, and if those things are not addressed, it's going to ruin you. Those are the things that could really ruin you. And God, our Father, who did not design the world to be filled with evil, he uses that external brokenness and even your internal brokenness at exactly the right time and place, in the perfect measure, the perfect amount, to move you from blindness to self-awareness. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. The Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope, secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Consider him who endured. You want to Run this race, endure, he says. Look at Joseph. Joseph in the book of Genesis. I'll tell you Joseph's story very briefly. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. 
in the Old Testament. You have Jacob, Joseph's father, because he made an idol of his own wife, Rachel. When Rachel died, that idolatry of his wife immediately shifted to his son, Joseph, a son born through Rachel. And he doted on Joseph, and he loved Joseph, and he had lots of sons. But above all of his sons, he just doted on Joseph. And that poisoned his family. That poisoned all of his brothers. They got envious and jealous to the point where they wanted to kill their son, their brother. And it also poisoned Joseph. We ignore that a lot of times. We see the brothers. The brothers, they hate Joseph. But the poisoning went deep inside Joseph. And so he made, if you look at his dreams, he says, I had these dreams and you were all bowing down to me, right? Mainly what he's seeing is you see the self-absorption and the pride, and it just corrodes Joseph. And if God would have just let Joseph go, he would have been a miserable person, or he would have been dead, one or the other, right? What does God do? Joseph goes through an amazing amount of heal, uh, suffering, tremendous amount of suffering. I mean, we've all suffered here, and some of us are suffering immensely, and I don't want to make light of anyone's suffering here. But I want to point you to Joseph. If you look at the story of Joseph, Joseph gets betrayed by brothers. He gets sold into slavery by his brothers. And then, just as he's making it out of that suffering, he gets accused of a tremendous crime that he doesn't commit, and that throws him in jail and lands him in jail. And so, in jail, and it's debatable how many years he was actually in jail, but we know that he was in jail for a while. It was years. Now, think about it. He's in jail for a crime he didn't commit, in jail for years. And the Bible doesn't really write about what he actually goes through during those years in jail. It's like a few sentences, and the chapters kind of gloss over other narratives that take place while he's in jail. But there's very little mention or no mention of his suffering in prison. Can you imagine the suffering in prison? Jail today is different from prison back then. This is the ancient times. You lose your citizenship. You lose your identity. They make sure you are broken down to nothing. You lose your life. And the thing is, he's in jail. He's in prison, not knowing if he'll ever get out because he's accused of a tremendous crime that he didn't commit. But what happens in that time? You don't see much of those years. But that external suffering was used to humble Joseph and heal him of his internal suffering. The, inter, the, things that's, the thing that's really killing him. And in those years, in the end, Joseph becomes a great man. He becomes self-aware. He becomes wise. He becomes humble. He becomes forgiving. He becomes resourceful. And that resourcefulness saves his family and saves the entire country that he's living in. And what does he say at the end? Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He reflects on his own suffering. And he says, you meant it for evil. He's talking to his brothers. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He was able to see God as trainer. He was able to see God as his discipliner. He was able to see God as his father, Padilla, discipline. Friends, unless you can see your hardships like that, you're never going to be able to make it. You're never going to be able to make it. You see that? And I'm going to kind of gloss over this in the interest of time, but there are two ways that the author here says, don't deal with your suffering this way. In verse 5, he says, don't make light of it. In other words, don't mock it. When trouble comes into your life, don't sit there and say, I'm not going to let this beat me. I'm going to beat it. I'm going to buck up. This thing's going to pass, and I'm going to be better for it. The author in Hebrew says, don't do that. Don't do that. It's going gonna, it's gonna to make you an angry person. It's going to corrode your soul. Don't do that. That's not endurance. That's not a good type of uh, endurance. You, if you, you see this often. You tell your child, um, did you lie? And the child says, I lied. Go to your room, no dinner, no movie tonight. And the kid says, I don't care. I hate this stuff anyways. And he storms off to his room. What is he saying? I'm not going to let you beat me. I'm not going to let you get into my heart. I'm not going to let you change me. I'm going to be resilient. I'm going I'm to be steadfast about this. You know, they say Joseph Stalin, Joseph Stalin, you know, great 
uh, part of the Bolshevik Revolution, after, um, after the Bolsheviks took over uh, in the revolution and the Communist Party uh, took over, you have uh, Joseph Stalin, who was probably one of the longest tenured dictators uh, in their history. They said he committed more crimes internally of murder and tyranny than the scope of Hitler many times over. That's what they say, of his own people. On his deathbed, and this is anecdotal, right? But on his deathbed, they say, uh, it was actually, it came from his daughter. Joseph Stalin was once a seminary student. I don't know if you're aware of this. On his deathbed, after decades of murder, after decades of tyranny, they said that on his deathbed, he raised his fist to the, to the air, shook his fist at God, collapsed, and breathed his last. That's what they say. That's bad type of resilience, okay? That's a bad type of resilience. What you're saying is, you're the enemy. A child looks at you and says, you're the enemy. I don't care about this. You're the enemy. Don't do that. The author says, don't do that. The other thing the author says is, verse 3, don't lose heart. Don't grow weary and lose heart. Don't fall apart in despair. Don't sit there and say, how can, I go, how can anyone get out of this? How can anyone look at this and say, some good will come out of this? No one does that. There is no good. I'm ruined. I remember um, my friend tells this uh, story. Uh, and before we get this, you know, when you're confronted, uh, when you're confronted uh, with suffering, we're so much more concerned oftentimes with the consequence of the suffering, more so than what God is doing in the suffering. We're so much more concerned about what's going to happen as a result, the outcome of the suffering, much more than what is God doing in me during this process. Uh, now, the story. My, my, my friend... Um, Tell me a story about his daughter, about her daughter, actually. Um, she lied. She lied about something that was pretty trivial. But she blamed what happened on her brother. <laughs> and so uh, our, our friends believe in corporal punishment, and they said, well, then he's going to get a spanking. And in a bout of conscience, the daughter kind of awakens and says, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. It was me. I did it. I did it. And she's wailing. I did it. It was me. It was me. And the mother looked at her and said, do you realize, why did you do that? Why did you lie? She said, I was afraid of getting hit. I was afraid of getting punished. And the mother said, do you realize that you're so worried about the consequence? You're more worried about what's going to happen to you than the fact that that lie, what that lie is doing to you and what that lie did to me. And what that lie did to your brother was about to do to your brother. You're more worried about what's going to happen, the outcome, than that thing that's inside you and what it's doing to your whole family, including and most especially yourself. Do you see that? Don't lose heart. Don't grow weary and lose heart. Endure suffering as hardship. Endure suffering. He says, God is treating you as sons. God is disciplining you as sons. Verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time. Later on, what's it going to do? If you sit there and dwell on what is God doing in me? How is at the right time, at the right time, when you're able to get a hold of yourself and ask, what is God doing? And with your prayer is, what are you doing in my life? Later on, it will produce a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained by it. In other words, if you endure, if you endure this hardship, God will use it to bring more of his holiness, more of his righteousness, more of his peace, more of his glory in you, more of his character, more of his poise in you. We're are you going to get the power to live this way? If you mourn too much, you're losing heart. If you mourn too little, you're making light of it. If you mourn inordinately about loss, you're losing heart. If you're not mourning at all, your heart is hardening. You're making light. You're mocking it. How do you know that you're mourning too much or you're mourning not enough and the answer is simple 
The Hebrews had this author. Friends. Your friends, your closest friends, will be able to tell you, I think you're making light of your circumstance. Your closest friends will be able to tell you, I think you're mourning too much. It's time to let it go. I'm going to start there. Having said that, how do you apply this? Some quick things here. First, you need to throw off. Okay, verse 1. Throw off everything that hinders and a sin that so easily entangles. What does he mean by that? When you go to training, what do you do? You dress for it. Go back to that military analogy. Boot camp, training. Do you wear a suit? No, because a suit, you're not adequately equipped for the suffering. You're not dressed for the suffering. You're not ready for the suffering when you do that. When you go to go work out, do you wear a suit? No, you're not going to wear a suit when you go work out. You're going to wear, you're you're preparing for what you're about to endure, right? You're preparing for the sweat. You need the flexibility, right? You're prepping. Dress appropriately. Remove the makeup. Get rid of the ornaments. I'm going to say it another way, friends. What that means is stop covering yourself with things that make you look good, that build up your reputation, that build up your status, to make you a certain way because that which you're using, you're covering, do you see you're covering over a deeper insecurity? You're covering over the things that are actually hurting you. You're covering over those things and you're saying, I'm okay, when you're actually decaying inside, you're caving in. Do you see that? What are the things that God is working on right now for your good? Throw off everything that hinders. What are the things that, that, you are, that are weighing you down? What are the things that are hindering you? What are the sins that are entangling you? Is it your pride? Is it your self- selfishness? What are your idols? Repentance, the very nature of repentance is what? You're throwing it off. You're letting it go. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Second thing is, I want you to kneel down. Right? Kneeling down, the whole passage, verses 5 through 11, focuses on God as our Father. That immediately insinuates what? We're kids. We're all children. And children, by nature, there's no... Ch- every child thinks they're wise. Right? Every child thinks... They never appreciate discipline when you give it to them. Right? They're going to justify. They're going to argue. They're going to make a case... Until you truly understand the love of your father, until you truly understand the wisdom of your father, you will never be able to trust. But a good child who understands the love of his father, who understands the wisdom of his father, trusts. And by nature, children have to trust anyway. A child by nature is helpless. So a child by nature trusts. A child by nature depends. It's implicit. So the first thing is throw off develop a practical repentance. The second thing is then kneel down. Develop a practical humility. That means a practical humility, a humility that walks, all right? That means be humble, but make it a practical thing. What are ways that you can practice humility in your life? What are ways that you can practice repentance in your life? Throwing off, shedding weight, making sure that you're putting on, you're dressed, you're ready. The third thing is, then you got, if, you're, if you're throwing things off and you're kneeling down as children, seeing yourself as a child, then thirdly, what are you putting on? That word endure comes up over and over throughout the passage. That word endure is the Greek word hypomeno. Hypomeno. It's, it means hyper-steadfastness, hyper-resilience. That means you don't give in. You don't give in. You're taking it on. You're not giving What does that mean? When suffering happens, our instinct is to lick our wounds and retreat. And we're going to retreat away from friends. We're going to retreat away from prayer, study of the word, people who can actually help you to repent, really. But in the storm, what does it mean? What does it mean to put on? What does it mean to hypomeno? It's the image of a ship in a storm that's holding fast. You're holding fast to, to uh, the, the mast. You're holding, you're clinging tight. You're holding straight. You're keeping that rudder straight. Why? You're going to fight through every distraction, every wave. It's just beating, beating, beating. You're going to hold fast. You're going to brace yourself. What are you going to do? All the urges to retreat, all the despair in your, the mental despair, you're going to hang tight. You're going to hang in there. You're going to fight through it. That's how storms shape you. 
That's how God builds you. That's how strength happens because you feel weak. You just feel broken, crashed into. And yet, that weakness, that soreness, that's the goo. Your muscles are turning to goo. When the suffering ends, and it will end, it will end, you get stronger. That's how suffering shapes us. It's not going to determine. We look at suffering as something that determines our direction. Because of this happened, I've become this type of person. The reason why you've become that type of person is because of the way you responded to the suffering. You see, the key is to hold fast. Abide. That's the word. We don't use that word a lot. Abide. John chapter 15. Abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He's saying, hold fast to me. I am your life source. I am the ship. Right? Hold on to me. Abide in me. That means to obey. Develop a practical obedience. How do you do that? In Gethsemane, Jesus Christ is in Gethsemane. And they said that, the author writes in the Gospels that Jesus is so broken down. He says, I'm overwhelmed to the point of death. What he's saying, I'm suffering. And because what he's doing is he knows the weight of the wrath of God, the penalty for our sins is weighing heavily on him and he knows what he's about to endure. And it's weighing down so heavily that even before he actually experiences the suffering, he's experiencing it mentally and psychologically at Gethsemane. He's, he's mentally and psychologically understanding that the Father is going to abandon him, that people are going to reject him, physically he's going to suffer immense pain, but the Father himself is going to reject him and pour his wrath on him. And it's just breaking him down, wave after wave. And he says, Father, if it is your will, Take this cup of wrath from me, but not my will. Yours be done. You know what he's saying? He says, Father, practical humility. He's kneeling, and he's broken down. And he says, here's a man who's never sinned, never sinned, but he practices humility, and he says, not my will. Yours be done. Practical obedience. In the midst of suffering, the worst kind of suffering. And on the cross, what happens? Hebrews chapter, chapter 12 says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. The, only, the best trainer is the one who's gone through it. The best completer is the one who finished it. Jesus Christ, he says, he sat down at the right hand of God. He's a high priest who sits down. High priests never sat down. You only sit down. The act of sitting down means that you finish the work. When you're working, you're rushing. You sit down and rest when it's done. The author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down. He finished. The best trainer is the one who went through it. The best discipliner is the one who's been through the discipline, who understands his purpose. And yet, Jesus Christ, consider him who endured. What did he do? He suffered on the cross. Every other religion says, here's how you deal with suffering. Here's how you view it, right? It's because your body is bad. You need to be broken down. It's because suffering, all religions have a different view on suffering, and it's equal. They have equal uh, to worse ways of dealing with it. But Christianity says, our God suffered. Christianity is the only faith and that says our God actually suffered. Our God suffered. Our God suffered and endured, and he finished. How can we possibly have the power to do it? Hebrews chapter 12 said, why did Jesus, answers this question, why did he suffer? It says, who for the joy set before him. What did Jesus see? on the cross that was his joy that was so big it supported all the suffering he endured and the answer in isaiah chapter 53 which is one of the biggest messianic prophecies of jesus right he was a, he was led like a lamb to slaughter by his wounds we are here healed if you read through isaiah chapter 53 there's this one part that says he will be satisfied at the justification of many. 
That means that as Jesus was on the cross and wave after wave, the real song, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He called him God. God is no longer his father. God has abandoned him. His father has rejected him. And yet he's still obedient. My God, my God. And it's breaking him down. It's beating him up wave after wave. The punishment of our sins is just being poured out on Jesus. And he says, I've been rejected. I've been forsaken. Yet he remains completely obedient. Completely obedient. What was his joy? Do you have a joy that enables you to get through all the suffering that you endure? What was Jesus' joy? The satisfaction of his soul was the justification of many. You know what that means? You are the joy. We are the joy. He is envisioning you. Never being forsaken by God. He says, it's worth me being forsaken. He sees you together, one, the glory of God going into you. That's why he says, the glory of God has departed from me. It's worth it for him. He sees God's holiness, God's glory, God's righteousness pouring into you. He says, then the wrath of God pouring onto me, it's worth it. In fact, it wasn't like he was sitting there like a child saying, I don't care. That's not what he said. He said he was glad. He was glad. That's the power. You know why? There's your validation. There's your purpose. There's your meaning. There's your destiny. The glory of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God coming, pouring into you. That's the Holy Spirit. It gives you that. The glory of God, more of him into you. So you can have his joy, he became joyless. So you can have power, he became powerless. So you could be holy, he became sin. So you could be sons, he became forsaken, disowned. That's your purpose. That's so that you could become more of what you were designed to be. He gave up everything he inherited. Do you see that? And he's saying, I want you to throw off your idols. I lost God, the everlasting Father, in my suffering, so that in your suffering, the perfect glory of God will enter in. I've sought you in my suffering. I want you to seek me in your suffering. I have suffered for your sakes. Will you suffer for my sake? Look at the beauty of Jesus. Are you getting it in you already? Are you getting it? Are you seeing it? Will you fix your eyes on it this week in your suffering? Jesus Christ, consider him who endured so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Trust. Let's pray.